but it's my privilege to um, preach this morning about uh, out of the book of Jude. Uh, you know our series is called Contending to Faith, uh, Contending for Faith. I just wanted to say, um, as I start this morning, uh, I'm aware that the first half of Jude is quite kind of um, uh, heavy in a sense where Jude is kind of uh, rebuking these false teachers in the church. But the second half of Jude is absolutely beautiful. If you, if you read further, you'll see it's that amazing doxology that we know so well. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. And he commends these people to the lordship and the, of Christ over their lives. So just bear that in mind, right? Because we've got a couple more things to get through why Jude is um, so critical of these people that have come into the church to try and change the character of the church and to try and change the gospel message. And remember, that's the main theme. And it's particularly appropriate for us right now, living in the 21st century, because we face many of these challenges ourselves. And there's nothing new under the sun. It just gets repackaged with different language in a different uh, way, but this, the ideas are centrally the same. And so many of the things that we face today in terms of individualism, in terms of personal revelation, you know, I've got this special revelation from God that no one else has. Whenever anyone says that to you or presents you with a book that says no one else has had this revelation, just be very careful, all right? Because it, uh, it shows someone who hasn't uh, taken the time to read the last 2,000 years of church history where people have been thinking and grappling with issues for centuries and centuries and they have wrestled through things, and that's why the church is where it is today. I've often found this. When someone comes with a book and says this is a new revelation that no one else has had, it normally is accompanied with this thing, and the course costs $100. And uh, if you want to benefit from this amazing teaching, you have to buy the course for $100 and subscribe to my new brilliant theology. The gospel is for free. The gospel is simple. Everyone can understand it, and that's what Jude is helping us to come to terms with in this letter. So we're going to re read on from verse 11. <laughs> and he says, Woe to them. Remember, he's talking about these teachers. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. What on earth is he talking about? Okay, well, we'll, talk, we'll, we'll learn these things now. These people are dangerous rocks blemishes, some translations say. I believe the better translation is dangerous rocks at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn leaves without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars, for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, encouraging his people. Isn't it true? Jude is so <laughs> forceful. His language is so strong. He's trying to get across this message to these people uh, in, in, the church, in the earlier church. These men are not good for you. And he uses a whole lot of metaphors that we're going to explain this morning, look at this morning. And, and last week, Clive continued to paint this picture for us um, as Jude describes these super spiritual kind of people, these loose living people, these troublemakers that have infiltrated this early church. And um, he showed us that they were motivated by their own dreams, their own desires, and they tried to put those dreams and desires onto the gospel message and change it so it would fit their worldview. 
And we face the same challenges today. People are trying to do that as well. He showed us, secondly, that they rejected authority in the local church and tried to exercise their own authority in areas that they had no right to. Now, I've said this before, but possibly, we can't say this 100%, but possibly these people were Gnostics. There was a movement in the first four centuries of the church called Gnosticism. And the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word Gnosis, which means knowledge, special knowledge. And so as the gospel spread and more Greek people were assimilated into the church, they brought with them some of their philosophical ideas, some of their ideas about creation, and they tried to bring these into the church. And so one of the, the big challenges of the early church was to refute Greek philosophy and hold to Christian doctrine, all right, as it was revealed and passed down. And so that's one of the big challenges. And there were two areas, really, that Gnostics diverged from Orthodox uh, Christian belief, and they were around creation and, secondly, the nature of God, all right, the nature of God. So, for example, with creation, they believed that all matter that we see is evil. It's fallen. They believed that the Creator was not a good Creator. They called Him a demiurge, and He was a, 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 an evil Creator who has fallen Himself, and so He created the world that was fallen. And therefore, Gnostics said, all matter, our bodies, the world in which we live, is fallen. It's evil. It's of no use. And the only thing that is pure is your spirit. And so it led to a dualism, seeing all of things that are physical things as evil and spiritual things as pure and good. Now, that's very opposite to the Christian message, which says, God so loved the world. He's a good God. He's a good Father. He so loved the world that He created the world and He gave us His Son. The second way that um, Gnostics, um, uh, what they believed, is that they were quite elitist. So because the world was fallen and all of us, our bodies, are fallen, they said there were only special people that had retained something of the divine when the world was created. And they called this a divine spark. They said there are only certain people in the world that can be saved, and they're really special people because they have the divine spark of, of God within them. And everyone else are just plebs that have no chance of being saved. But only the special people with gnosis, with divine revelation that no one else has, they're the only ones that can be saved. And if you live by faith... That's like a second-degree way of relating to God. It's not the best, you know, the, only the special ones have this divine revelation. And so you can see this led to an elitism in the church. And why do you think Paul says things like this? Knowledge puffs up, gnosis puffs up, but love builds up. Why does he say that? Because he was also battling these ideas that started infiltrating the church. Why does Paul say things like, the gospel that we preach is foolishness to the Greeks, but it's the wisdom of God to those who are being saved. Why does he say those things? Because this was a very common thing that there were uh, Colossians 2 that we have studied. Remember the book of Colossians where Paul is refuting Gnosticism in that letter, and he just speaks about the lordship of Christ and the greatness of Jesus, that he rules over all things, and he's the creator of the universe, and he's a good God to us. So this is all my introduction to say, my friends, let's not ever give in to this notion that somehow some people are special 
have special revelation that no one else has. That's Gnostic. There's only one Lord and Savior. His name is Jesus. He has revealed himself to all of us, and simply by faith, as we believe on him, he transforms us from one degree of glory to the other, and we can know our Father in heaven as a father because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen. The gospel is simple. Don't let anyone make you think it is complicated and that only special people can really understand it. All right? And so... Uh, I, we can't say for certain that these were Gnostics because it was the first century and Gnosticism really only became sort of fully blown in the second and third centuries. So quite possible that these are the roots of Gnosticism. But we can certainly say this from the, the way that Jude writes. These people were super spiritual. They were saying that they were special. They were also loose living. Oh, that's the other thing I wanted to tell you. Because, the, because Gnostics saw the body as being evil, two things happened. Some of them said, well, actually, I'm going to beat this body into submission. And so what did they do? They became aesthetic. So they fasted, and they beat themselves, and they did all those, all those kind of things to beat the body, which was evil, into submission. And then there were the other extreme, where there's a second group of Gnostics that were completely licentious. They said, well, this body doesn't count for anything, so I'm just going to enjoy this body. And so why does Paul say things like, should I sin more because of the grace of God? No, this body is a temple. Surely because this body is a temple, it's the grace of God that enables me to say no to all things that are ungodly. Why does he say things like that? Well, because this was the common thing he was fighting. So we can't say these were Gnostics, but it's very much likely there was some Gnostic roots there. But they certainly were loose living, super spiritual people. And um, Judas saying about the judgment that awaits these people. So I had a look last time I preached about the three examples that he used, the people of Israel, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah that um, were judged for their sexual sin and for the lack of the, their care for the poor. And the third example he used was the fallen angels that were judged for their rebellion. And so those were examples that were Judas saying, as surely as these things happened, these false teachers will face the same judgment from God. And here now we're going to look at these verses this morning where he um, further illustrates and gives us examples of these super spiritual troublemakers in the church. And um, what makes these examples quite difficult to understand is that for Jewish people they would have been really easily understandable because they were Old Testament examples and they knew the examples well. But for us, we have to think about, well, why is Jude using it and what is he trying to say as he uses this example? So the first uh, example that he uses is Cain. And he says, these false teachers have taken the way of Cain. And you know Cain's story from Genesis chapter 4. Um, um, Clive alluded to it last week. Each of the sons of Adam brought an offering to the Lord, and Cain, being a farmer, brought an offering from his harvest, from the work of his hands, and Abel, who was a shepherd, brought an offering from his flocks. God accepts Abel's offering, but he rejects Cain's sacrifice. And it seems that at the beginning here, God puts into place a system of sacrifice in the ancient world. And the question is, why did God, uh, Abel, choose to bring an animal? Well, if you look at Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that in verse 21 it is, uh, after God has brought judgment on Adam and Eve, remember they've sinned in the garden, and God says, for this reason, 
Adam, you're going to toil to make anything grow. You, you, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to grow things, and that's going to be the penalty for you. Eve, you're going to have pain in childbirth, and it's going to be difficult for you, and you're going to follow your husband because of, of what happened in the garden. What it's, if you look carefully at what it says, it says, God made clothes for Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. So the first person to introduce animal sacrifice was God. He was the first person to kill an animal. Instead of killing Adam and Eve and passing judgment on them, he, the, 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 the sense is there's an animal sacrifice, and through the animal sacrifice, the penalty is taken away from Adam and Eve, the penalty of death in the Garden of Eden. And so here we see right at the beginning this, there's this uh, substitutionary sacrifice that God institutes right in the, the beginning in Genesis 3. And so that picture of animal sacrifice continues throughout uh, the Old Testament, and God looks on Abel's sacrifice with, with pleasure because it's, what, it's, what it's pointing to is that Abel is trusting God for his salvation. And this is what uh, Hebrews makes clear because it says in Hebrews um, verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 4, by faith... Abel offered a sacrifice more acceptable than Cain, through which he was commended as being righteous. God commended him by accepting his gift, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So the real difference between Cain and Abel's sacrifice was the difference between trusting God by faith or trying to do it yourself. It's between faith in God or by your own works. Cain brought his, his produce that he had produced with the work of his own hands. He had toiled and he had labored and he brought that to God as an offering. And God said, it's not by your works that you're going to be saved. It's by trusting me that you're going to be saved. And that's why he looked upon Abel's sacrifice with pleasure. And so that's the real difference. And so Judas saying, he's using this in the example to the early church. He's saying these super spiritual people that have come into the church... They're trying to change the character of the church. They're trying to say, take your, faith, take your focus away from, the, from faith in God and put your focus onto other things. That's what they're trying to say. And uh, they're trying to build a different foundation other than the foundation of sacrifice through the blood of Jesus. That's the foundation of the church. That's our message. That's the secret of the church is that we can't save ourselves. We need a Savior and he is Jesus. And so it also says that in Genesis 4, verse 5, it says when God rejected Cain, he says he became very angry and his face fell. And in a fit of anger, he murders his brother and he lies to it about God. And so when Jude uses this phrase and says these people have fallen into the way of Cain, what he really is saying is that they have, they have this, this way typifies a way that people choose to relate to God. The one is through faith, which God loves. The other one is through dead works. The other one is trying to save yourself. The other one is, I can do this all through my own strength. I just need to work really hard and I can do it. That's what Jude is saying. It's the way of unbelief. It's the way of empty religion. It's the way of works. And so he's saying, these people that have come into the church, they're trying to get you to be a people of works rather than a people of faith through what they teach. And be careful, 
That's what he's saying. So that's the first example. And that's uh, 2 Timothy. Remember, Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 5, that there are those that have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of God. And he says, flee from those people. Have nothing to do with them. No wonder he said that, because Paul is saying the same thing. Empty works. Religion is dead and useless. It cannot save you in any form whatsoever. Only thing that will save you and bring you close into a relationship with God is the blood of Jesus which you believe by faith. Amen. So that's the first example of Cain. Then he says, um, these men have rushed into profit for Balaam's error. Now, what was Balaam well known for in uh, the Old Testament? Well, he was a famous person in Israel. He was a preacher. He was a prophet. But he wanted to use the gospel to make money without being true to the gospel. Wow. I can think of gazillions of people in the 21st century who are trying to make money out of the gospel without being faithful to the gospel. And if you listen to televangelists, that's your right to do that. But I have to say, many, many things that are on television, televangelism, are absolutely useless to you. <laughs> now, everyone's... I hope you won't hate me after this, but perhaps some, some people will. They are useless to you, and there are people making money out of the gospel without being true to the gospel. It's a form of the gospel. It's not the true gospel. Be wise. I, I said it with a smile on my face. Be wise, okay, in what you listen to and take into your lives. And so... Jude is saying, when he uses this example of Barnum, he's saying that these guys, these super spiritual people that have come into the church, they are not being faithful to the message of the gospel, just like Barnum wasn't faithful to the message of the gospel, and they were doing this for their own profit, for what they could gain. He said, beware of such people in the church. So this, the, the truth is, for us, we as 21st century Christians, we need to know that actually there are people like that that come into the church. There are people that come in to deceive and to try and make money. In the history of this church, we've had that. Someone came into the church, took money from people. Oh, what a great guy. What a great preacher of the gospel. No, a wolf, a liar, a thief who took money from people. We have to be wise, my friends. Not everyone who comes in is a, is a sheep. Sometimes there are wolves that come in. And what Jude is saying is be aware of the wolf. Even if he looks like he's a spiritual man, discern what is right and what is wrong through how he lives. Amen. And so uh, Barnum's story is in Numbers 22 and Numbers 25. And just to summarize it, as the Israelites come out of uh, Egypt and they start defeating all the Arts, remember? The Amalekites, the Moabites, blah, 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 all the arts, and they start taking the promised land. Well, Balak was the king of Moab, and as soon as he hears about this, he gets a little bit nervous. So he says, um, uh, he's concerned for his own kingdom, and he says, I need to make sure this doesn't happen to me. So he gets hold of a, a prophet in, in, in Israel called Balaam, and uh, he tries to get Balaam to curse Israel. He says, that's what I'm going to do. This is my plan. I'll get Balaam to curse Israel. But Balaam knows that God... Yahweh is the true God, and that he's never going to curse his people. He's never going to, he's, he can only bless his people. And so this is, uh, as the story un, un, unfolds, Balak sends a delegation to Balaam to try and get him 
to do this. God says to Balaam, have nothing to do with them. Uh, you can read that in Numbers 22. And then he doesn't give up. He comes back again, and this time he comes back with a treasure trove, a lot of money. And he says, actually, Balaam, if you curse Israel, you'll get all the bucks. You'll get all this money. So it's the second temptation. And so Balaam says this. Listen to what Balaam says. Numbers 22, verse 19. He says, Please stay the night, you and all your people. Please stay the night that I may pray again and see what the Lord might say to me. You see, it's already gone into his heart, isn't it? He's already tempted. I, I know what God is saying, but the money. Oh, man, the money. If only I could get the money as well as saying what God said. Well, obviously, it doesn't work out like this. So, story unfolds. Balaam tries to prophesy four times. And each time that he prophesies over Israel, he cannot but help himself to bless God's people because the Spirit of God comes upon him and he blesses God's people four times. And then he says at the end, he says, actually, you know what, Barak, if you, if you want to... Israel to fall, this is what you need to do. Introduce them to idolatry and sin, and then God himself will judge them. Balak betrays his own people by saying that to Balak, and that's exactly what happens. Idolatry comes, Balak introduces idolatry into the community, and there's a whole lot of stuff that happens, and God's judgment comes upon the people of Israel. Balaam does an incredibly terrible ugly thing, not only does he lead the people of Israel into sin, worse still, he does it for money. My friends, I find this, um, as a teacher, as a preacher, I find this so challenging that whatever we preach, whatever we teach, how we live, if it brings people into sin, if we are somehow encouraging people into sin and loose living but through what we teach, Man, the judgment of God comes upon our lives. God doesn't like that. And even for me as a preacher of God's Word, He's going he's to discipline me if I ever do that. And that's the warning of, 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 of what um, Jude is bringing. He's saying, these guys that seem so spiritual, that seem like they are so much higher in their understanding than anybody else, they are like Balaam. They're trying to sell a message to you that's not the real message. It's not the authentic thing. They are changing it, and they're doing it for money. So what they can get out of you, be wise. And we are called to the same wisdom in our own lives. Every preacher, every Christian has to learn to forget themselves and concentrate on the message that has been handed down to us faithfully through thousands of years of faithful men and women holding on to the gospel message, faithfully handing it on to the next generation. That's what we are called to do without changing it one little bit. Despite the pressure from, from society to say, you must change this message. There's one message. We are all in need of a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. There's one who can save us. His name is Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, he transforms your life. He forgives your history. He transforms your present, and he gives you a future that is sure and steadfast. That is the message we proclaim. And don't change it. <laughs> don't give in to pressure to change it. Because that's what we hand on to those generations that are coming after us. And then... Third example, Jude says, 
these men have been destroyed, past tense, in Korah's rebellion. Now, if you know what Korah, Korah was a famous man as well in, um, in the Old Testament, he wanted leadership. He wanted to be the head honcho. He wanted to be the main guy. He didn't like it that Moses was the main guy. He was a Levite. He had a priestly function already. He had leadership already, but he didn't like the, the fact that Moses was called to lead the people out of Egypt. And how do I know that? Because in Numbers 16, it says this. He says, one day he comes with all of his followers to Moses, and he says, you have gone too far. All the congregation is holy. Sounds so good, doesn't it? All of us are priests. You know, we all can hear God. Of course, all of us are equal before the cross. So why does Moses get to lead? That's basically what he's saying. Why are you exalting yourself, he says, above the assembly of the Lord? He's implying that Moses has elevated himself above the people just because he wants to be the main man. Well, as you know the story of Israel, God has chosen Moses. It's quite obvious that he's chosen Moses to lead the people out of slavery. He's, he, uh, he gave them God's law, and he showed through the Passover, um, uh, Passover meal that they, they all needed a Savior by the blood of a lamb. That's what Moses did. He was, he was a great, the greatest leader of the Old Testament. But they reject this authority. And I find, I find it so fascinating when you read the story. Moses, you know, when they come to him, Moses does nothing. He doesn't fight. He doesn't argue. You read it in Numbers, what it says. It says he falls face down and he trusts God. That's all he does. He gets on his knees when these people come. To accuse him, he falls on his knees, on his face. He says, God, I trust you. Let your will be done. That's all he does. And God says to him, take your censer. The censer is what they burned incense on. And give one to Korah. Come into my presence. So they go take the censers. And as they're approaching uh, the, the tabernacle, God says, Moses, stand back. And as he stands back, Scripture says the whole earth opens up and every single one of Korah and his followers are consumed into the earth and fire comes down from heaven, boof, and they are decimated. They are no more. <laughs> it's quite a story, isn't it? And so here, the point is that Korah wanted authority that he didn't have. And so Judah saying, in the same way, these people have come into the church and they're trying to take authority that is not theirs. It has not been given them by God. It is not theirs to take. They are just like Korah. And do you notice he says, they have been, uh, what is the exact thing? Uh, they have been destroyed, past tense. Well, well we, we don't know that anything even happened to those people. So what he's really, he's speaking by faith. Judah is saying, I am absolutely convinced that these people that are trying to deceive you, they have already been judged, just like Korah was judged, and it's as good as if that had already happened to them. I am so certain that God is going to deal with these men. That's what he's saying. They have already been destroyed, just as Korah was destroyed. And so Cain was a farmer, Balaam was a prophet, Korah was a leader in God's people, and Judah uses their stories as examples to help us understand the kind of people that were coming into the church to try and change the character of the church and point people away from Jesus. And I'd just like to um, land 
I just, I've got to do this. This language is so incredible. This, this language is so incredible. Verse 12 and 13, if you can put it up. He paints a vivid picture of what's going to happen to these men and, 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 and just what kind of men they are. He says this, These people are dangerous rocks at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualms, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain. They are blown along by the wind. They are autumn trees without fruit, uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars from whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Man, it's poetry. It's absolutely passionate, isn't it? And what he's saying here, first thing he says uh, some translations say blemishes. We had a look at the Greek. The Greek is actually spilades, which is only used once here in the book of Jude, and it means dangerous rock. It means something upon which you're going to shipwreck your life. It means you can't see it. It means you're coming into the harbor, your boat is sailing, and suddenly there's a dangerous rock that you don't see. Boom, you hit the rock and your life is shipwrecked. That's the image. He's saying these people are like that. You can't quite see what they're doing, but through their teaching, what they're doing is they're putting a dangerous rock in your place, and if you follow it, you're going to shipwreck your life. That's what he's saying. Have nothing to do with these men that teach falsely. It's powerful, powerful language. And then he says, at your love feasts. So you know, in the first two centuries, it was only in the third century that this changed. But the first two centuries, when the Christians met together, they had what was called a love feast, what we now do with breaking of bread. But it was a meal where they got together and they fed the poor. And everyone brought what they had. It's like we do when we have our, our bring and share. Everyone brought what they had and they pulled it together, and they ate together. It was called an agape feast, a love feast. And at that, I'm certain that at that feast, some people, there were slaves, probably they ate well for the first time in a week. They made sure that the widows were taken care of, that the poor were taken care of at these love feasts. And, and Judas is so critical of these men. He says, they come and eat at your love feast without qualm, without a problem. And actually what they do is they feed only themselves. They take the best for themselves. And they don't care about the poor. They don't care about the widow. They just take what they can get, these super spiritual people. And so Jude's point, his point, is that these selfish people, these super spiritual people, spoil fellowship when they come into the church. They spoil f fellowship. And Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, he says a very similar problem was there in the, in the Corinthian church. And it always spoils fellowship when people come into the church with a selfish agenda. What are you going to give me? How are you going to bless me? How can I be fed this morning? What are you going to do to feed me? Always spoils fellowship. The reason we come to church, the reason why we are in community is because of what we bring by nature of who we are. That everyone is enriched because John comes here this week. Everyone is enriched because Maria comes and Eleanor comes. Everyone is enriched because <laughs> Rosemary comes. You, you enrich the whole of the church by virtue of who you are and what God has done in you, and you add your gifts into the, into, the, into the mix every time you come as a believer. And that is why God loves community, church community. That is why the church is poorer every time you are not here, because we all miss out on what you bring. We miss out on your gift. We miss out on who God has made you to be and your wisdom 
and everything that God has blessed you with, we miss out on it when you don't come. Sorry, I'm shouting. That's why, that's why Jesus loves church. He's coming back for, for his bride. All of us called out ones, together with every other believer that ever has been. He's coming back for all of us. He's beautiful, beautiful bride. And so why is it so important? Because when there was a love piece, there was teaching, there was worship, and these guys that infiltrated with their false teaching, that's why it's so dangerous. Paul says, I'm not Paul Jude says, have nothing to do with them. He says they only feed themselves. The word literally there is they only shepherd themselves. And I, I hear echo in that of Ezekiel. You know that Ezekiel also prophesied against the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel. In Ezekiel verse 34, he says this of the shepherds, the people like me that are supposed to be leading. He says this, he says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even as shepherds, this, thus says the Lord your God, shepherds of Israel, you have been feeding only yourselves, should you not feed also the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself and with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. We don't do the gospel for profit in any way, shape, or form. Anyone who does the gospel for profit is not following what God has in his word for his people. Shepherds are there to feed people and to build, encourage people and not to get fat on the gospel themselves. So I'm speaking to myself and every other preacher or leader in the church. Jude adds, he says, these are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. If any of you have lived in dry places, you know this, that clouds in a dry place that do not have water are absolutely good for nothing. All they do is block out the sun. What good is there if there's no life-giving rain in a cloud to bring sustenance to parched, parched land? And so that's what he's saying of these people. These, these guys, they are just like clouds that are blown. They have produced nothing. They've got no rain that can bring you any sustenance. He says, he adds, they are late autumn trees without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. So what is he saying by that? I mean, obviously, trees should have fruit by the end of autumn, so they've got no fruit. So they take and give. They don't produce any fruit themselves. But he says they are so fruitless. It's like they are twice dead. So they are uprooted and they are thrown so they can never be planted. They can never be alive. They are twice dead. They do not bear fruit, and they can never, bear, they can never live anyway. So in other words, these men are... They are dead to sin in their own lives, and they are doubly dead. They are dead to the gospel. The good news that could actually transform them, they are dead to that. They are doubly dead, these men. Have nothing to do with them. They are wild waves of the sea. You know, for me as a modern person, a modern person, a 21st century person, the sea is only incredibly beautiful. It's only something that refreshes me. I love being by the sea. It's my happy place, just to be by the sea. But you know, in the, old, in the, in the ancient times, it was a thing of terror. You, you couldn't manage the sea. You were completely at the mercy of the sea. 
and sometimes when there was a storm and you were at sea, you feared for your life. You would not get out of that alive. And that's what um, Isaiah says. He says in, 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 in Isaiah 57, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose water cast up dirt. He's saying wicked people are like that. And so what he's saying, Judah's saying, these men that have come into the church, they're teaching, it's like it brings a raging storm. It's like, it's like the debris after, after a storm on the beach where there's just debris and horrible things all over the beach that, you know, I was telling the guys yesterday that I stood on a, a thorn when I was visiting my dad. Uh, and six weeks later, I discovered this big thorn was still in my toe. And my toe was like inflamed and I couldn't walk properly. And I thought, what has happened? Have I got arthritis or something in my toe? And uh, Helen had a look and there was this tiny little speck and I, uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say we pulled out a thorn the, the length of my nail in my foot. That had gone in and snapped off and it was still there. Uh, and he's, he's saying the same thing. He's saying, if you listen to the teaching of these men, all it's going to do for you is be like debris on the beach. And you're going to tread it on. It's not going to do you any good. It's going to hurt you. Don't have anything to do with these guys, these people. I know I'm laboring the point this morning. They're driftwood. And then he says they are like wandering stars. You ever seen a comet go through the sky? It's beautiful, isn't it? It's an amazing thing. I've seen many comets go through the sky. This is, this is his point, though. In ancient times, how did people navigate? They navigated by the stars. If you were on the boat, you would navigate at night by the stars. He's saying they are like wandering stars. They are like comets. You cannot navigate your life by what they teach because it's gone. It might be brilliant today and you think, oh, how clever, but it's not the gospel. It, you can't navigate the whole of your life by what they teach. They're like comets. Brilliant one day, gone the next, not ever going to do you any good. Have nothing to do with these people. And so how does this apply to our lives? I'm landing now. How does this apply to our lives? Well, I find it incredibly encouraging reading it. But my friend Michael Eaton puts it like this. He says, when we come to a scripture like this, there's something to be seen in doing exactly the opposite. So in other words, what is he saying? He's saying this. Let me put it to you this way. If these super spiritual loose living people are intruders at love feasts, at, 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 when Christians get together and they are breaking bread and they're sharing love with each other, if, if they are infiltrating those meetings and causing harm, then surely as those that follow Christ, as genuine believers, we need to recapture and reclaim what is authentic. And so when we get together, we genuinely forgive we break bread knowing that we are completely dependent upon the grace of, of God ourselves every day, moment by moment. And we are generous in, our, in, our, in our, what, what, what we bring. That's the authentic, isn't it? So if we're not going to be like these, these false people, then let's be the authentic. Let's love genuinely with open hearts. Let's forgive. Let's do all that we can to be at peace with all men. And as we break bread, let us remember it's the grace of the Lord Jesus that we need more than anything else. Secondly, if these people were dangerous rocks that could shipwreck uh, lives, then surely as, um, as genuine believers, we should not be dangerous rocks to anyone. We should rather be a lighthouse. We should rather be those 
by which people can navigate their lives and find Jesus themselves. We should be those that point people to Christ through our message, through our life, through our example, so that people can find Jesus. If these people were empty clouds without rain, surely our lives should be lives that are so full of the presence of God because we love Him, we love His Word, we love His people, we love the Holy Spirit, so full, overflowing, that people come and drink and are refreshed by being with us. That's the genuine. Not that people say, thank God, and and it's gone. Every time I'm with Him, it is so discouraging. The life is sucked out of me. I feel exhausted when I'm with Him. No? No? Surely it must be the opposite, that we are, we are life to each other. We bring courage to each other. And surely, if these men's lives were completely unfruitful, surely by the power of the Spirit, our lives should be full of fruit in season, that we are doubly alive because of what Jesus has done for us. Doubly alive, dead to sin and alive in Christ because of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen? And lastly, surely by the power of the Spirit, we can stay on the right course for all of our lives. We can navigate by the power of the Spirit. We can navigate by Jesus. We can navigate by His Word. And through the course of our lives, we can end up where He wants us to be, completely sure that our future is assured. And there's a beautiful, beautiful scripture I want to finish with. Daniel 12, verse 3. You know, we, we store up tre- treasure for he- in, in heaven, don't we? That's what our lives are about. Our lives are about living well here, but ultimately it's about storing up treasure for heaven, in heaven one day, that God will reward us with that inheritance and that reward. This is what Daniel says. I love this. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, he says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's what God has for you. He wants you to shine like a star forever and ever. And how do you shine like a star forever and ever? You find wisdom from the Lord, and you turn many people to righteousness. Then you begin to shine like a star that people see forever and ever and ever. Amen. God bless you guys. Let's be wise. Let's live sharply in the 21st century. Let's not be deceived by every teaching and everything that we see on TV or some book or other. Let's, let's stick to the main thing. The main thing is the simplicity of the gospel, that we are all sinners that need God's grace. It's His mercy that finds us. It's His kindness that finds us. His grace transforms us. As we live by faith, everything changes. That's the message. You can repeat that to your friends and your family, and you can tell them with confidence that is the message of the gospel, because that is the message of the gospel. It's as simple as that. We all need a Savior.